people get into weird things like, uh, do I have anything to say? And it's a s exaggerated, uh, self-obsessed ego that is in control of that process. And creativity can't come from that place. Creativity has to come fr from absolute uh, joyful disregard, disrespect of my own ego. Hello and welcome to the EverCoach podcast, the online destination for a coach that wants to create a positive impact in the world and make good money along the way. I'm your host, Ajit Nawalka, and every week I'll bring you the world's best thinkers, coaches, trainers to share some of their best ideas to solve real client problems, live a prosperous life, and be an even better version of ourselves. And today, my guest is Steve Chandler. Steve Chandler has written 30-something books at this point in his life. He is a legend, the original gangster of the coaching industry. He's somebody who's been at it for decades now and has impacted so many coaches' lives by his school, through his own coaching, and of course, through his amazing books. If you haven't listened to Steve Chandler ever, you are going to love this episode. In this episode, we discuss ideas around creativity. We discuss ideas around getting past things like writer's block or not feeling good enough about creating your work. We talk about creativity. We talk about how to get your book out in two weeks. We also talk about ideas that may be vitally important for you as a coach right now. You see, Steve was somebody who struggled in his early years, like all of us, in creating a business that really did work. His diversity of experience plays an important part in his coaching journey right now. Very often, we listen to ideas that talk about knowing your purpose exactly as before even you got started. Steve stumbled into coaching while living the experience of life. So if you're somebody who is unsure about what your purpose is, why you want to do coaching, how you want to do coaching, you want to listen to the first part of this conversation and see how easy it can be if you just let life play out and responded to the life as it happened. I loved this conversation with Steve, and I am sure you're going to love it too. Now, before I bring on Steve, I want to remind you that the giveaway is still on. So go over to evercoach.com slash giveaway. That is where you find out all the details on how you can get an iPhone, a couple of courses, or a couple of books for yourself. It's only a week and a half left in this giveaway, so I really invite you to go over to that page after you've heard my dialogue, my conversation with Steve Chandler. Now, without further ado, let me invite Steve Chandler. So excited to have you here today, Steve. I am super pumped to have this wonderful conversation with you. Like I was mentioning as, as we started the dialogue that I've heard about you, of course, many times. I've read many of your books and I've been very inspired to read many of your books. Uh, a lot of, uh, we have a lot of common friends like Michael Neal, Rich Litvin, Jason Goldberg, uh, who are all uh, authors on our platform, Evercoach. So it's very exciting to speak with you because you're also like the OG of, of the coaching industry, uh, the original gangster, if I may, <laughs> of the coaching industry who's been inspiring coaches for such a long and fun period of time in such a good way, such a good, kind-hearted way. So first of all, welcome to the show. I'm super excited Thank to you. talk to you today. Um, 
Before we get started, uh, for the people who may not know uh, Steve Chandler, why don't you give us a little introduction, a little backstory about you? Well, um, I kind of stumbled into this field of um, training and coaching and speaking. I was a songwriter. I was in the military. I was in psychological warfare in the military. And so I've always been fascinated with how the mind works and how dialogue and interrogation happen. And so I came out of there. I went into the music industry and wrote song lyrics for five years. That was a lot of fun, but it didn't really pay the bills over time. So I became advertiser, marketing director for a corporate training company. And they were training companies all over the world in sales and leadership. And I stepped in to substitute for the main guy one night and uh, I got very high ratings. And so I started to learn it and teach it. So for years, I did nothing but sales training and uh, corporate training, leadership training. And over a while, they began to ask for coaching, which I didn't really know how to do but they were willing to pay for it. And I had a lot of debts, I was broke. So I took it on, I learned it as fast as I could. I went into my background of, um, I'd had psychotherapy with Nathaniel Brandon, who was very famous in his day. And uh, so I kind of drew from a lot of fields. I went into Landmark and I learned a lot from then. And I had my own coach I learned a lot from, and I went to Byron Katie's nine-day school and three principles training, everything I could get my hands on to justify being a coach. And uh, meanwhile, I was writing books compulsively. I've always, always written, written songs and poems, and I was in journalism. So that was always something I loved to do. And I began to move the writing into the, to this field, the field of coaching, personal development, sales, leadership, creativity. My last book uh, was about creativity. And, uh, and, and here, here I am today. It's been a long ride. I've loved it every step of the way. I've had great coaches and mentors, and I came from terrible uh, bankruptcy and poverty and uh, really the last person my family ever thought uh, would make anything of himself. And uh, so it's been a wonderful field. And I've met great people like uh, Jason and Rich and Steve Hardison and Byron Katie and people along the way who helped me find myself and um, give me a way of sharing what I've got with other people. So it's been good. That's beautiful. Steve, I think what is also inspiring about your story, which is very inspiring for newer, even coaches who have been doing this for a little bit, is that the diversity of background, the diversity of things that you've done um, and still found great success in the, in the, in the area of coaching. I, I personally am very inspired also because I am somebody who has always believed, oh, you got to stick to your lanes and you got to do this thing and you got to only do this thing. Um, and and I think your story kind of, while it is about focus, it is a lot about, hey, let's bring in everything, or seems like it has it has a lot of element about bringing everything that you got, and it'll all work out. 
Would you, before we get, and I want to really dive into the topic of creativity because uh, for the listeners who don't know, Steve has written over 30 books and that is something that is absolutely inspiring for me. I love writing myself. I've written three books as of now. I hope to get to 30 books one day, uh, but it is very, very exciting for me to hear from somebody who has done that much creative work. So we're going to dive into creativity, but before we get that, could you talk a little bit to the comfort of diversity? how you have been able to tap into the speed of life, if I may, or, or the variety of life, if I may, and still see the beauty of it all coming together from somebody who is, like you mentioned, broke in debt to somebody who is very successful in the field of coaching and as an author, um, and maybe many of the fields that I'm not aware of. Uh, so, so if you could speak to that, because I think that would be very interesting for people to hear. Well, it wasn't it wasn't a plan ahead of time to be in so many diverse fields. I, I just kept bouncing around, uh, hoping this one would be the one and it would like the songwriting went really well for a while and it was exciting and then it crashed and I was in journalism. Journalism didn't pay much. I was in advertising. And when I found, um, but I used, I kept drawing on those fields. All of those fields have something to teach. And one of the great things about coaching is there is no real narrow field of coaching. The great coaches include all their failures, everything they've uh, messed up at, and, and learning about life in general to help people. So it's not like a narrow field of expertise. It's more like a greater field of wisdom and understanding of the other person for a coach to, to finally reach the high level and, and be successful. So in the end, looking back, it was more like a mosaic than a single painting. I, I pulled from here, I pulled from there, and now I use it all when I, when I coach people. I like having an eclectic background. I like having been in the music business, been in the military and worked with corporations. And uh, it serves me now, but during the time I was going through it, it really felt uh, crazy. It felt chaos, like everyone else has a purpose that they're in alignment with and they're on a perfect path. And I'm all over the place. I don't. I I had low self-esteem. I don't know what I'm doing. But at one point, it all came together, and I realized I can use all of this. There isn't anything in my past. Raising my kids, I had uh, full custody of four children that I raised, and um, and so it all came together. It all became part of what I was able to help other people with. And it gave other people a sense of, gee, if he can do this, I can do it. My life wasn't that messed up. Most of my clients uh, never had the financial troubles I had or the struggles with trying to raise four little kids on my own. I'm not playing it like a victim. I, I mean, these were, these were crises I created myself from lack of... Uh, direction, lack of um, commitment, lack of integrity that I had to clean up and strengthen up for my life to work or else my life would never have worked. But once I got that process going, I was able to help other people 
with similar versions of so-called failure or challenge. Uh, when they saw how how wild mine were, they they had hope. Wow! If you can get through that, or you can turn that around and make it a positive, uh, maybe you can help me with mine. So so that was in the end a real service to me. I wouldn't have done it again deliberately, but that's how it worked for me. So would you say that it would be an interesting idea for coaches to? appreciate the struggles that they may have had and turn it into a story of the positive that may actually get more interested clients and also make a better narrative to be able to coach individuals. Absolutely right. Uh, It is more interesting to a client to hear uh, about a struggle I've had or to hear about a failure I've had than for me to just uh, trumpet about all my successes and how great I am. Because I find in relationships, that's kind of a turnoff or that's distancing. And the client becomes a little intimidated uh, and think thinks maybe I'm not worthy. Maybe this coach will judge me as being inferior. And I think coaches make big mistakes of trying to be impressive trying to hit a home run in the first five minutes of conversation, not realizing that uh, the first consideration is connection, rapport, and a person feeling safe to, to share uh, what's really going on. Otherwise, they'll only share little bits and pieces so that they look good, and you never really get to what they wanna, want to have changed. And then coaches get puzzled, like, I thought I did a great job. I killed it. I gave them an amazing session, and they even told me so. But we never got to what was in their heart that they were afraid to share. And because of that, uh, they're not going to pay a lot of money to work with this guy because they're afraid maybe they'll never reveal that to such a powerful person. That's the downside of trying to come across as impressive, powerful, uh, magically skillful coach instead of a compassionate, sympathetic person who really wants to understand what's going on in your world, even, even at the highest business levels. Very interesting, Steve. Steve, I have a follow-up question to that. And this is a personal struggle somewhat, right? So I'm I'm certain there are other coaches who feel the same way. A lot of times when we are hoping to open up with our clients, there is a sense of, for lack of a better term, that comes to me, a sense of insecurity in sharing something that is very vulnerable to us. How do you get past that initial fear of, oh, I don't know if this is too much too fast, or is there a thing that is too much too fast? For me to share something, you mean? Like for me yeah. to share something? Well, I I think that comes with, with a kind of intuition, inner wisdom, um, how I've connected so far. I have to get a feel for whether um, this is too much too soon or whether this would really be useful. Um, and, and if I have a feeling it might be useful, 
like I have a past history of addiction with alcohol and drugs. Now, I don't go around, I wrote a book about it, so I'm not hiding it, but I don't introduce myself as a former addict, alcoholic. It, it, but if I feel that it uh, could help somebody who's struggling in the same level, um, I don't mind sharing it. I would rather risk sharing a little too much than uh, walk away later w wondering if I had shared that, would I have made a real connection? Mm. So I'd rather err on the side of being really open about uh, who I am, not some kind of perfect person who has his act together and I'll teach you to get your act together. I'd rather uh, have it be I'm going to partner with you on, on and commit to what you're committed to and work with you on achieving it. I'm not going to download this superior wisdom to you every step of the way. Beautiful. Steve, 30 books. That's a lot of books for somebody to write. How do you tap into that much creativity? Is there a process to it? How did you even go about starting that journey of which has led you to over 30 books now? Well, uh, it was never my intention. Um, I wasn't even going to write one book. I was in my late 40s and I thought, that ship had sailed, you know. I thought um, authors start young and they really learn their craft. And uh, but I was kind of tricked into writing a book. It, it it was a handout in a course, and it became a book. And when I finished, uh, I loved the process, and I got an idea for another book. So now. My lifetime goal was to have two books, the one I had written and the one I have in mind. And it always happened that way. It was never like I'm, I'm going to write 20 more books. It was, it was always I'm, gonna, I'm considering writing one more book. And if the idea it really excites me, I'll pursue it. So it, always, it happened kind of serially. It, looking back, it looked like I was just churning them out with, with some secret process, but it was always being inspired by an idea for a book that when I finished my book, I thought, oh, this is a great idea. This would really help people and it would be fun to write. And, and then the next thing I know, there are 30 of them. <laughs> so I didn't have a, a, I don't have a special productivity process um, I just uh, set a little time aside for it, and I knew the secret formula. I was taught this by a friend of mine when we were writing songs. Uh, the way to get a book written, the secret formula is time and attention. How much time and attention am I going to give to this book in the next two weeks? Not wait around, see if I'm blocked, see if I'm inspired. Uh, let my feelings tell me when to write. Uh, it didn't work that way. I had to say, tomorrow from 9 to 11 is going to be time with the book. And once I got that, where I would just schedule time, like uh, walking the dog, like I'm going to go walk your dog. If I were a dog walker, I'd, I would spend time. I'll pick your dog up at 9, get him home by 11. 
I'll sit with my book at nine. I'll leave the page at 11. We'll just see what happens. And when I made it real simple, uh, the book got written. But when I got emotional about it, or if I thought the book was important, or if I thought I was important, or if I got into the really weird superstitious uh, questions like, who am I to write this book? And will anyone ever read it? And all, all these things that are, you know, something a, a five-year-old would ask about a book. Uh, I, I just had to let those go. That, that They had to become irrelevant. I'm either writing the book or not. It, so it became like painting a room. It, I wanted to have it just be um, just average person, average day, doing an average task. Washing the dishes, writing the book. And then we'll see what happens. A lot of really profound things that you said in there. And I know these are real struggles for, for individuals. And I love the comment that you made in the, in the, as, as just a passing comment, as I think you were saying something to the tune of, I'm paraphrasing you right now, but uh, it was um, superstitious beliefs like, who am, I write to, who am I to write a book like a five-year-old would ask themselves. Speak more to that, because I, I do know that's a real question that's a real challenge that individuals do encounter and why do you relate that to a five-year-old asking that question i think there was some golden nugget in there for us well it's uh it's it comes from a kind of self-obsession that i have i'm not saying other people have it but so the more self-obsessed i get uh the more i'm thinking about me the more as I write the book, I'm, I'm wondering, what will people think of this sentence? And uh, I become like a five-year-old out on the stage, blushing, so embarrassed about doing a dance because everyone's looking at her. And if I, um, I had to release all that. And uh, the, so there's no individual writing this book. And um, there's no editor editing while the book is being written. And there's no care what people are going to think of the book. Um, so the book does not become about my ego. So it, be, it, it gets reduced down to a beautiful creative process, like if you're planting some flowers, you're not obsessed with what will people think and what will people think and are they the wrong color flower? You're just loving planting the flowers or washing the dishes. Uh, what are people thinking of this dish? Is it clean enough? Who am I to wash dishes? I'm not a professional dishwasher. And, and then people get into weird things like, uh, do I have anything to say? And it's a s exaggerated uh, self-obsessed ego that is in control of that process. And creativity can't come from that place. Creativity has to come fr from absolute uh, joyful disregard, disrespect of my own ego. It, has to, it just comes flowing through with joy and fun. And then later in the editing process, we'll, we'll take out the truly weird stuff or, or things that uh, 
are not going to be fun for people to read. But during the writing process, uh, the ego is the problem, but the ego doesn't have to be there. This isn't about me. I I hear you. I hear you. I, so there are, there are a few nuggets that you've dropped already that I feel like could be very valuable when somebody's trying to kind of lean back into their creativity, like the nugget that you just shared, uh, like have a disregard for your ego. Uh, I think previously when you were talking about how you go about writing your books, you kind of uh, alluded to the fact that there is a time and 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 a and a outcome that you want from it, and you've just set yourself for this is two weeks. I'm writing between nine and eleven, and I'm just going to go write without, of course, any ego. A was I accurate in in deciphering that? And secondly, are there other things that one should consider when they are thinking about to thinking about hey, how can I lean more into my creative process of doing X, book writing being one of them? But I feel like this is applicable to anything that is a creative task for what you just mentioned? Yeah, um, I think the, the solutions are, are not magical and they're not, um, you, you know, around creativity, people get very self-conscious. It's like they're putting themselves out there. They're all, uh, asking people to judge their work and evaluate it. And, um, but if I take it as only a piece of work, and I'll deal with judgment later when it's finished, but just a piece of work, like people talk about uh, a superstition called writer's block. Like I sit down, I've got two hours, I'm blocked, I can't think of anything to write. Now, um, that is um, over-exaggerating the importance of what I'm doing taking myself too seriously, taking the book too seriously. And now I've made up an otherworldly, fictitious uh, disease called writer's block, a neurological disease where I'm blocked, I can't write. Well, other profession, I wanna bring this back down to the real world. So, so people who drive a truck for a living they don't call their boss and say, I can't drive my route today because I have trucker's block. And the boss would say, trucker's block, what's that? Well, that just means you want to drive, but uh, there's something in you that, that has you saying, yeah, well, if there's something in you but tomorrow again, you're fired. Uh, you know, so there's no trucker's block. A trucker is feeling down, not inspired, maybe even sick. Uh, will drive his or her route because that's just the job. So I want to reduce my book to a job. You know, it's just, uh, so all I need to do is darken, keep it as simple as possible. My job is to darken the page. That's it. I've got five pages here. If at the end of my two hours, these pages are dark with ink, done. You know, I've, I've done my writing. And I want to give myself that non-judgmental freedom to just write. And the writing, uh, I'll, I'll decide later if it's a book with, worth putting out or if some needs to be changed. But at the time, I want to just write freely and uh, see what occurs. And the more I would do that, the better the books were, the less had to be edited. 
And it was a matter of just normalizing the process and not making it uh, some big deal where the spotlight was on me and it was all about me and my talent and my writing skills. And uh, that when that dropped away, there's just a book to be written. Those were the best books with mm-hmm. no editing, no judgment of the book as it was being written. Steve, say if somebody has got all of those beliefs, now they have acquired them over a lifetime because you know they watch too many YouTube videos of people talking about a writer's block because they think they were in one. And um, well, they listened to that video 20 times and now they have that as a firm belief. What would be your advice beyond, of course, listening to you right now and experimenting with it? Is there something else that you would inv- invite them to think about or do like a thought experiment or something that can help beyond the conversation that we already had? Yes, uh, I would do experiments like um, just write. If it if it's coming out badly, if it's boring, if no, if you're thinking nobody would read it, just write it anyway. Your job is to just keep writing. So it's almost like uh, you're going to paint part of a wall in your bedroom, and you set you committed time. I've got paint. I've got a roller. I'm going to paint it. And uh, there's no judgment. It's filling the page. And I just want to fill the page with words. And I want to just keep going and keep going. And and what what would always happen was, yeah, maybe the first couple paragraphs would be boring. Nobody's interested in this. Uh, and, and then at once... The, the severe self-judgment just gave up. You know, there was something in there where uh, the self-judgment, the ego said, okay, he doesn't, he's not going to stop. No matter what we tell him about how bad his writing is, he's not going to stop. So we're just going to take a hike and let him finish. So uh, once the judgment gives up as not going to be listened to, not, no thought is going to be believed about this book. Then it starts to flow nicely. Then, uh, then nice, then good things start to happen on the page. But you have to be willing to not become hysterical, panicked, or melt down just because a thought occurs like this isn't any good. How do you deal with feedback as a creator? The reason why I ask this question is not only in writing sense, a lot of people that would be watch, listening to this or watching expert, uh, excerpts of this, uh, pr- uh, this interview and conversation would be people who will be like, okay, I don't want to write a whole book. I, I do want to write because it's an expression of what I do, or I want to record a video uh, that is an expression of what I do. Uh, and that means I'm going to just put it out in social media. There's no like, there's no waiting for the entire book to finish. It's like, I wrote it, I posted it, I got feedback. And let's just assume that the feedback's crap, because that, at least in my experience, and I'm sure, I'm sure you may, actually, I don't know if you'll agree or not, but it's, at least my first few writings were terrible. Uh, and, and so every time I would put it out, it had no, like I had no understanding of how to develop a better storytelling. I still am working on it. I'm not I don't say that I have an expert of it in any way, but but I know the first few rounds of feedback feedback sounded really brutal to me and landed really hard for me. So my curiosity is how how do you deal with feedback and is there 
something that you remind yourself of while you're receiving that feedback? Yeah, the, the key guideline uh, is to not take it personally, but to take, but to let it inform you professionally, which, and, and that takes practice. That doesn't come naturally because we grow up in a society where we're, we take everything personally when we're growing up. And moving into a professional realm where you're putting out stories and you're posting things as part of your profession and someone says, that's terrible, that's crap, that's BS, you shouldn't even put it out. Um, because of our past history of taking every criticism personally, in professional life, we take that personally. And it it's wounding, it feels like rejection, it's deeply discouraging, we wonder if we'll ever do another video. But the practice is uh, reconsider that, and can I learn something from that? My first audios that I put out, my first audio books, they got terrible reviews because I spoke slowly. And uh, I got a review in a New York newspaper many decades ago, and the headline was, Wake Me When It's Over. And it was... Ooh, <laughs> it was that's brutal. <laughs> it is. It is. It, and uh, somebody brought it to me. Hey, they reviewed your book. In the, in the Buffalo paper. Oh, wow. I'm so lucky I get to do this career. And the headline was, Wake Me When It's Over. And it was a book I uh, read called 100 Ways to Motivate Yourself. And the writer said, this guy is giving us ways to motivate ourselves, but he forgot to motivate him himself before he went into the studio. Um, do not operate heavy machinery while listening to this audio. It will be dangerous to your health. Um, if you leave, if you don't leave um, totally depressed after hearing him, you are very lucky you probably didn't listen. Um, he should have had someone read this for him so somebody listening would have a, at least a little bit of encouragement. Uh, one guy, sent me an email and said, your, uh, your motivational audiobook made me want to commit suicide. <laughs> I thought, hmm, that's going in the wrong direction, I think. That, that's not optimal. That's not the effect I wanted. So um, now I had to not take that personally and, and weep and cry softly into my pillow at night and and I had to say, okay, they've got a point. And uh, I need to step it up a bit. And if I'm going to do audio, maybe I'll have other people read my audio. But if I'm going to do audio, I'm going to make a concerted effort to at least not have them kill people or um, make people fall into a big machine and get ground up because they fell asleep listening. So I took some acting lessons and I got some coaching and I, I pumped up my elocution on the, and it got better, but that was a professional decision. I want these to not um, discourage people from listening to them. So I think the key thing with that, with, with criticism of your creativity is professionally, what can I learn? 
are they are they valid? Are they sending me some guidance on where I can go to make it better? And personally, I don't want to take it personally. I mean, I know I gave it my best shot. I was a little naive about how bad it really was. I wasn't a public speaker. I wasn't good at that. So that that's the key thing for me is um, when there's negative feedback, is it val? Can I learn from it? Sometimes the negative feedback is from a competitor is obviously just some kind of weird sour grapes or some kind of thing that I just disregard. And um, but but the key thing is to have high level of consciousness when negative feedback comes back. It's part of the when you put things out there in the world. There will always be that. Oh, he's this, he's money hungry, he charges too much. He's inauthentic, he's he's trying to he's plagiarizing somebody else's program. And you'll hear that. And you have to be okay with it and ready for it. It just means a lot of people are seeing you. Mm. Steve, I have a question that that is not direct directly related to creativity but is related to what we're talking about which is when you receive feedback you you said you got the coaching you you took classes and so forth some of our students are in transition they are individuals who really want to do this work but are in transition they are currently having jobs they not they not they may not be financially really sound at this point in their lives what is there is there some kind of a thought process or some kind of self-coaching toolkit that you could advise a person on, hey, listen, this is how you want to go about thinking about if you're feeling beat up because of somebody's feedback or want to raise your vibration to a higher consciousness so you can be detached to the, the noise that is coming at you or stay on course to knowing that it will all be okay in time. Is there something that you could uh, guide our, our listeners towards? Yes, um, I think it's important that in, in, in the stages toward mastery of something, the, um, there, a low stage is always discouraging, failure, I don't know if this will ever work, I don't know if I have enough money to back up a coaching program. Have that be normal. Um, allow that to be there as a stage, not something wrong. And um, and if you've got a coach or a friend who can help you see that, it's just like when you first learn to ride a bicycle as a child. The child falls off the bike. Now, um, as a child, they don't quit. They don't get all embarrassed and like, oh, what is everyone going to think of me? I can't ride a bike. They, if nobody's looking, they'll just get back up on the bike. And because they don't have that program in there, like I have to succeed, it's embarrassing to fail, that programming isn't in there. So leave that programming out and know that if you, if you fail, I had a, a great client once, he started a new company and he had a slogan called Fail Forward. And he said, we're going to fail. We're going to go up against bigger companies we're going to try stuff and we're going to fail all the time, but we're not going to quit. We're going to fail forward. We're going to learn from our failures and we're going to celebrate our failures 
but we're going to fail forward. And, and he ended up leading the industry and he would, so he changed the interpretation of failure. Failure was doing your best and not yet getting the result you want. That's all it was. Nothing wrong with that. So, um, I would change the definition of failure and not make it so catastrophic. And I would always stay on the path and keep going. And the more you stay on the path, even if you hit a plateau, you just keep putting in time. And by the law of physics, you'll get better and better and uh, hang in there and find people who've been where you are so you can get guidance. That's another thing. That's why coaching is such a great thing in the world. I was around when there wasn't such a thing as coaching. To get coaching, you had to be in a sport or in the arts, an actor. But for average people putting together businesses, and there wasn't such a thing. You had to go to a shrink, go to a psychologist, and, and um, display some kind of mental disorder in order to get help. But there wasn't coaching. These days, um, you can have a coach help you along the way. And the greatest thing a coach does is makes failure normal, um, demystifies it, and takes the superstitious demonization of failure away from it. So it's just a stage. It's part of the process. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that, Steve. Steve, there are so many beautiful nuggets that I've got out of this conversation. Is there something that you would like to, as we close out this, this conversation, at least for now, uh, is there something that you'd like to leave the listeners with in context of how can they tap more into their creativity and be more creative selves every single day? Well, I would stay open to what it really is. Um, I've written a book called Creator, and my um, desire in that book was to show people don't realize how creative they really are and how divine the act of creativity is. And so they, they keep it narrow, like I have two little things I'm creative about, or, I, or there are three people in my team who are creative, the rest of us aren't creative. And that's just a myth. That is self-hypnotism away from creativity. So my last word would be wake up to how creative you really are and allow yourself to apply creativity to every little thing, not just some expert place that you put it. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Steve. Steve, how can our listeners know more about your work, any classes that you're doing, or any book that you would recommend people to know about? Well, it's just all on my website, stevechandler.com. They'll find everything there. Okay, awesome. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you so much for taking the time and having a conversation. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I am certain after listening to this conversation, you're more inspired to go out, write that book, create that video, be creative, put your message out in the world. And if that is the case, there is a perfect companion I have for you. It is Steve Chandler's latest book, Creator. Creator is a brilliant, brilliant book that will help you be in the state of creativity and create more things that are more powerful and in alignment with yourself. I couldn't recommend this book enough.
So go to the show notes below. You'll find a direct link to Creator. Download that book if you are an audio listener, if you are somebody who likes to read. It's the perfect book to have it by your side as you create more amazingness out in the world. Thank you so much for listening. This is Ajit Navalika, and you're listening to the Evercoach podcast. Hey, listen, as you're about to go to the next podcast episode you're going to listen to, there's a quick thing I want you to do. Go over to evercoach.com slash giveaway so you can join us and win a chance at winning an iPhone, maybe a couple of books, or maybe a couple of programs. This is your opportunity to win some free stuff before 2021 comes around. There's some really easy ways to win all of this good stuff, like subscribing to this podcast or giving a rating and leaving a review for this podcast. These are fairly simple things and you can do it, well, right away. So why don't you go hit that subscribe button, leave a review and a rating to the Evercoach podcast. Thank you again for listening in. This is Ajit Navlaka, your host at the Evercoach podcast. I am your host, Ajit Navlaka, and every week on the Evercoach podcast, I will bring the world's best thinkers, coaches, trainers to share some of their best ideas to solve real client problems, live a prosperous life, and be an even better version of ourselves.